I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. I met my first FBI agent when I was six years old. He was sent to our home to protect us. My father was arguing against housing segregation in St. Louis County. If he won, black people would be able to buy homes in St. Louis's white suburbs. And a lot of white people didn't like that idea. There'd been death threats against my father and threats to kidnap my two brothers and me. I remember standing in our living room in my nightgown. My mother was sitting on the sofa, crying. The agent loomed over us. He seemed like one of the good guys, in his dark suit with his short cropped hair and square face. I'd later come to learn that our family had a complicated relationship with the FBI. On the one hand, they'd send an agent to watch over us when we were threatened. On the other, we all knew our phones were tapped. You'd hear the telltale clicking on the line in the middle of every conversation. Years later, I sued the FBI for records about this time in my family's life. I sat in my office sifting through the documents I'd fought for. There were 150,000 of them, stacked up in piles of binders. And in them, I found confidential informant reports about my father. I felt sickened as I read the quotes of things he'd said in private, in his office, at a cocktail party. One report had my father's office phone number on it. It was file number 9867384. In the FBI's filing system, the 98 series is for cases involving sabotage. The St. Louis office of the FBI was keeping close tabs on my father. This is the same office, by the way, that was not asking questions down at the Grapevine Tavern at the same time about a conspiracy to murder Martin Luther King. In the last episode, we ended with a question. Why did the FBI stop its investigation when James Earl Ray confessed to murdering Dr. King? Why didn't they explore the possibility that others were involved? The answer to that question is connected to those files on my father and to the fate of his fugitive, Howard Mechanic. It involves a secret program run for decades by the FBI. I'm Nina Gildan-Seavey, and this is My Fugitive. The secret program was the brainchild of the FBI's leader, J. Edgar Hoover. And for our purposes, it's worth knowing a lot more about him. Because his prejudices and his obsessions set the priorities for America's top law enforcement agency for nearly 50 years. Upon the shoulders of John Edgar Hoover, director of the FBI since 1924, rest heavy responsibilities. Not only must he direct the Bureau's offensive against subversive agents, but he must also wage a relentless war against the common criminals, who, as much as any saboteur, undermine the security of the nation. That's from A Day with the FBI, a documentary released by Columbia Pictures in 1951. 
Hoover took over the Bureau in 1924, when he was just 29 years old. He ran it for the next 48 years, until his death in 1972. After he died, Hoover would become a symbol of corruption, the head of a crime-fighting agency that violated some of the country's most sacred laws. But that wasn't his image during those 48 years. I think our image of Hoover today is of this kind of rogue actor. He's doing all of this stuff in secret. Had people only known what he was up to, they would have been outraged. He's a pretty one-dimensional villain in almost all portrayals. And there's some truth to all of that. Beverly Gage is a professor of American history at Yale. She's writing a book about Hoover. But it's also true, first of all, that for almost all of his career, he was one of the most popular and well-respected figures in American government. For decades, Hoover and his G-men were a symbol of moral certitude, like truth and justice in the American way personified. This image was carefully crafted by Hoover himself. He had a lot of very specific um, physical characteristics that he wanted agents to conform to. So he didn't like bald men, he didn't like fat men, but he didn't like men with sweaty hands. And then there were some really odd ones. He didn't like men who looked too much like truck drivers. He didn't like men whose lips were too big. You were not allowed to have a beard. You had to keep your hair cut short. Your shoes had to be shined. You had to be wearing a dark suit. All of these things, which explain why when we think of an FBI agent, we have a very particular, to this day, a very particular image of who that person is in the way that you don't actually have a very particular image of, I don't know, someone who works for the Social Security Administration right? or other branches of government. Um, that was all Hoover. J. Edgar Hoover was born on New Year's Day in 1895, five blocks from the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. When he took over the FBI 30 years later, it was a small government institution. Nobody imagined that it was going to grow into what it did. He was very smart about uh, building it along the way as a very well-insulated, well-connected, and secretive organization. The mission of the FBI was crime-fighting investigating crimes for prosecution. But Hoover's real obsession was fighting communism. In many ways, it is the cause of his life from the moment that he enters government service as a young man to the moment that he dies in office about 55 years later. When Hoover started at the Bureau, the Russian Revolution was just a few years old. And when uh, the Communist Party, first of all, becomes more influential in the 30s. Uh, and then when the war comes along and we move into the Cold War, Hoover very much wants to claim this issue for the FBI, claim it as his own. In 1958, Hoover wrote a book called Masters of Deceit, the story of communism in America and how to fight it. The communists and their followers uh, who are dedicated to red fascism continue to live the big lie. Their goal has always been and always will continue to be the overthrow of the government of the United States by force and violence. That's Hoover promoting the book on TV and warning against the growing threat of the American Communist Party, the CPUSA. The Communist Party is not a political party. It's a subversive criminal conspiracy with direct links to Moscow and practically instructions from Moscow to it. This actually wasn't a total fiction. As far back as the 1930s, 
the Soviet Union was running sophisticated spy operations inside the United States. Soviet espionage in America had a 10-year running start on J. Edgar Hoover and his counter-spies at the FBI. Tim Weiner is the author of many books. One of them is The Folly and the Glory, about U.S.-Soviet relations. And another is called Enemies, a history of the FBI. Soviet espionage had penetrated the State Department, the Treasury Department, the Justice Department, America's wartime intelligence service, the Office of Strategic Services, and, most famously, the Manhattan Project to build the atomic bomb. Thanks to spies and defectors, Hoover and the FBI eventually realized just how deeply Russian intelligence had penetrated into the U.S. And it terrifies them. So that's the other side of the coin. This is not just a fever dream that J. Edgar Hoover cooks up when he wakes up in a cold sweat at 3 o'clock in the morning. Hoover was determined to find and root out the communists. One problem. He didn't want to bother with a warrant to do the things he wanted to do. Tap phones, break into people's offices, bug their homes. Hoover chafed at any restraint on his actions. And in 1940, he went straight to the president. And President Roosevelt says, listen, I'm going to write you a little letter here that says, you go right on spying on the enemies of this country, the communists, the fascists. Uh, And anybody ever questions you? You pull out this piece of paper. So Hoover said, thank you very much, Mr. President. Boom, done. Roosevelt didn't literally give Hoover a piece of paper. He wrote a letter to his attorney general, authorizing expanded evidence-gathering tools. And that permission slip led to a whole universe of violations, decades of them. Bugs and black bag jobs, taps on phones, poison pen letters, all of it under a program known as COINTELPRO. More after the break. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest Who Liberty stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. COINTELPRO, Counterintelligence Program, 
a decades-long operation to harass and disrupt groups that Hoover saw as a threat to American security. Here's Yale professor Beverly Gage again. COINTELPRO, I think often people think of it as surveillance or wiretapping, and certainly it was related to all of that. But it was a very particular program to actively disrupt the inner workings of a movement or an organization or a group of people. And no one outside of the FBI knew about COINTELPRO, not in the Department of Justice or Congress or the White House. No one. The very first COINTELPRO operation was directed against communists in America. The Communist Party USA was an above-ground political party. You know, 78-year-old uh, retirees uh, who uh, have meetings and carry cards, uh, card-carrying communists who, who sit around and bitch about the problems of capitalism and, you know, occasionally picket. But there were members of the CPUSA who operated underground. The underground component of the Communist Party of the United States was its link to Soviet intelligence, to the KGB. And there was money coming from the Kremlin to the Communist Party of the United States of America. That was a truth. There was a guy who was part of that underground, Stanley Levison. And he is the most important, invisible man I have ever come across. The first mention of Stanley Levison I can find in the FBI files is in a memo from June 9th, 1952. It's written to J. Edgar Hoover from the special agent in charge of the New York office. Levison is described as being 40 years old, 5'7", 150 pounds. His color is listed as white. Under characteristics, it says, and I'm quoting, nothing outstanding. The report has details on his parents, his wife, Levison's health. It says that Levison has, and I quote, a hemorrhoid condition as of 1943. They're almost literally up this guy's ass. The section on subversive activities, that's entirely blacked out. The FBI was watching Levison. There's a report of him handing envelopes to a known member of the CPUSA at a Woolworths. But that's not what makes him the most important invisible man. It's his connection to Martin Luther King. In 1953, they placed Levison on the security index, categorized as a threat to the state. He also goes on something called DETCOM, a list of communists who would be picked up and detained in the event of a national emergency. By the time he meets Dr. King, though, in 1956, Levison has largely dropped off the FBI's radar. Over the next two years, the men become friends. Levison helps raise money for King's work, he helps draft speeches. He even prepares King's tax returns. Clarence Jones, King's longtime attorney, called Levison Dr. King's closest white friend. Levison and King had been friends for six years before Hoover got wind of how close they were. Their friendship was his worst nightmare. A known communist whispering in the ear of a civil rights icon. From there, for Hoover, it's only a short leap to the Soviet Union directing a black rebellion. Something has to be done. So Hoover goes to Attorney General Bobby Kennedy. Hoover goes to Bobby Kennedy in 1962 and says, Martin Luther King is a communist. That's Tim Weiner again. Hoover told Kennedy Levison was advising King on everything. And 
his man, Stanley Levison, who advises him on everything, they talk on the phone all the time, he's a real communist. I mean, he's a member of the communist underground. Where was Hoover getting this intel? There's a handwritten note on a memo I have in J. Edgar Hoover's distinctive scribble saying he won't reveal his source. King is no good anyway, it says. Under no circumstances should our informant be endangered. A classic Hoover move. I know this thing, but I can't tell you how I know it. In March of 1962, Hoover gives an order to install a bug in Stanley Levison's office. The FBI would keep listening for almost eight years. If one of King's closest advisors was a communist, that was a problem for the Kennedys. They couldn't afford to alienate King, and yet they couldn't afford to be seen as being linked to a communist themselves. Here's John F. Kennedy speaking at a White House meeting. The trouble with King is everybody thinks he's our boy, Kennedy says. King is so hot these days, it's like Marx is coming to the White House, Kennedy says. The Kennedys tried a few times to warn King off of Levison. They said the FBI considered Levison a Soviet agent. Burke Marshall was the head of the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division at the time. We, I mean the administration, through various sources, warned Martin King of the Bureau's allegations against this man. Not in detail but in, in general. This is from an interview Marshall gave in 1985 as part of the PBS series Eyes on the Prize. When Marshall says, this man, he means Stanley Levison. King's response to the Kennedy's warning and to Hoover's supposed evidence was that he didn't believe it. He knew Levison. He relied on him. He wasn't going to sever ties, at least not willingly. In the summer of 1963, the Kennedys needed to try again. The issue was just too volatile. There was an election on the horizon, and JFK had just announced he was sending the Civil Rights Act to Congress in a nationally televised address. Next week, I shall ask the Congress of the United States to act, to make a commitment it has not fully made in this century to the proposition that race has no place in American life or law. In the 1985 interview, Burt Marshall said their congressional margins were razor thin. At the time the uh, Civil Rights Bill was pending in Congress, the question of its passage was was very, very close question at the time. When you counted votes in the Senate and the Congress, it, it looked, uh, especially in the Senate, it looked very, very close. Marshall said rumors that Martin Luther King was a communist would be a problem. Now, the, the problem that that created was the problem of diversion, of having the communist question thrown into what was essentially a matter of racial justice and have, have a, a, a crucial number of senators given the excuse to vote against a bill aimed at racial justice on the grounds that there was a communist infiltration the Bureau would have, uh, and I'm sure did, form critical senators of uh, what they suspected of the, this link between uh, those two men. If a handful of senators were convinced that the most important civil rights leader in the country was a communist or had communist connections, 
the Civil Rights Act would be sunk. In June, Kennedy invites a group of civil rights leaders to the White House, including Dr. King. At some point during the meeting, Burt Marshall takes King aside and tells him, look, we know Levison is a communist. So King asks for details. How does Marshall know? But as Marshall told the interviewer for Eyes on the Prize, he didn't have any details to offer King because Hoover wouldn't share that information. We couldn't do it in detail because the uh, Bureau claimed that to do it in detail would expose Russian agents. What Russian agents? Hoover won't say. Marshall is just going on Hoover's word. King is not convinced. So Marshall sends him down the hall to talk to his boss, Bobby Kennedy, who also gets nowhere. I have an internal FBI memo regarding these meetings. On it, there's another one of these handwritten notes from J. Edgar Hoover. The memo says, and I'm quoting, our early information concerning the communist connections involved here came from one of the two most highly placed communist informants. That's underlined. Another memo says that sharing that information could expose a highly confidential source, which could result in exceptionally great damage to the nation. Finally, Bobby Kennedy sends Dr. King into the Oval Office to talk to the president directly. JFK takes King for a stroll in the Rose Garden, tells him, look, you know you're being watched, right? You have to be careful. You can't associate with Levison. King doesn't defy the president, but he doesn't give in either. He says he'll look into it. Martin King had been warned again about this by the president personally, by the attorney general personally, as well as by me. And uh, he determined that he would break off connections uh, with this man. Soon, King sends word to the White House. He'll stop talking to Levison. But Burt Marshall said that's not what happened. Some time later, it turned out that he hadn't. And it was at that point, which I think was in the fall, after the March on Washington, uh, that the Bureau renewed uh, repeatedly its request for permission to put a tap on Martin King's phone to determine uh, the extent uh, and uh, substance of this man's influence over Dr. King, and it was approved at that time. The Kennedys had all but ordered King to cut Levison off. They thought he had. When he didn't, they took action. In October 1963, Bobby Kennedy gives Hoover the green light. And Bobby Kennedy signs an authorization as the Attorney General of the United States for Hoover to conduct 24-7, 365 surveillance on Martin Luther King. Find out what he's doing. Find out what he's saying. Bobby Kennedy, not the long-haired, love-bead-wearing peace candidate before he was assassinated in 1968. Bobby Kennedy, the tough-as-nails anti-communist attorney general of the United States. Spy on King. Tap his home and office phones. If King is a communist, they'll know about it. A year goes by. An eventful one. A month after Bobby Kennedy gave Hoover the go-ahead to spy on King, JFK is assassinated. Lyndon Johnson takes office. That whole time, the FBI continues its surveillance of Dr. King. On the morning of November 21, 1964, a man named William Sullivan 
calls an aide into his office at the FBI. Sullivan is one of Hoover's top lieutenants. He asks the aide for a sheet of paper, and he goes back into his office and closes the door. The aide hears him typing. A few hours later, he comes out holding some cash in one hand and a sealed package in the other. Now, Sullivan had been in Hoover's doghouse for months, ever since he delivered a report to the director suggesting that the civil rights movement might not be under communist control. They'd investigated, Sullivan said, and they couldn't find any evidence to support the claim. Hoover was furious, and ever since then, Sullivan was on a mission to get back into the director's good graces. Whatever was inside that package was Sullivan's ultimate act of fealty. Later that day, an agent flies with the letter to Miami, mails it from there with a Florida postmark. The letter is sent to King's home in Atlanta with no return address. It's a long letter. It's a vicious letter. Um, It's typed with a bunch of misspellings and a bunch of uh, poor grammar in various places. But it essentially says, you know, King, I thought you were a great man, but it turns out uh, that you're a beast and you're scum and your sexual appetites have uh, overwhelmed any virtue you might have. And it ended by saying, you know what you have to do. The letter was sent just days before Dr. King was scheduled to accept the Nobel Peace Prize. According to a later congressional investigation, Hoover was furious that King was being awarded the prize. He and others at the FBI knew King had attempted suicide when he was young. They believed he still had suicidal tendencies. They concluded that if they sent this letter to King, he might be so distressed that this time he would actually go through with it. Accompanying that letter was a uh, condensed version of some recordings that the FBI had made in King's own hotel rooms uh, of him engaging in uh, a variety of sexual activity. Because by this point, the FBI isn't just tapping King's phones. They're following King from city to city, putting bugs in his hotel rooms. One of the first hotel room bugs we know of was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, placed by an FBI agent named J. Wallace LaProd on January 22, 1964. No one has heard these tapes from the hotel rooms. They're under embargo, um, but uh, engaged in extramarital sexual activity of, of some sort. They sent this off to King. But King wasn't the one who opened it. The letters specifically that suggested that King should kill himself because the FBI was going to expose the fact that he had extramarital sex in his hotel rooms. You could hear the bed springs creaking. And they mailed that tape and the letter suggesting that King kill himself to his home and his wife Coretta opened it. The warning, we're watching you everywhere. We can threaten your marriage. We can destroy your image. Nothing is private. Nothing is sacred. This is not intelligence. This is political warfare. It was an unspeakable violation of the law and the Constitution and the principle of equal justice under law. It was a nightmare. The wiretapping and bugging of Martin Luther King would continue until his murder in April of 1968. All of those recordings remain under seal. They become eligible for release in 2027. 
But even at that point, the embargo might not be lifted, given the sensitive nature of the material. The COINTELPRO against Dr. King was just the beginning. Over the course of 25 years, the FBI would run thousands of operations. COINTELPRO was not counterintelligence. COINTELPRO was a specific set of programs designed to destroy institutions like the Socialist Workers' Party or the Communist Party or the Black Panther Party. The Black Panther program was subtitled COINTELPRO Black Hate. This brings us back to St. Louis and the fate of Howard Mechanic. The Bureau there initially targeted four groups for COINTELPROs. They weren't famous people like Dr. King. They were local activists, rabble-rousers, students, even housewives. And all of them were my father's clients. Next time on My Fugitive. We then went on to the little hallway and then wrote all up on the windows, tired of your bullshit, all on the windows. If you look at the 1878 woodcut of the first Vale Prophet and you see that he is dressed in white robes and a white hood and carrying a revolver, I, I think it's hard to miss the threat, you know, that says, we're in charge. These are our streets. We always talked about this issue of informants. Perhaps I was very naive. I was very young and very naive. I only thought about it as the people in the trench coats. I never thought about it as people who looked like us. My Fugitive is an original production of Pineapple Street Studios and Odyssey. You can binge all episodes from this series exclusively on the new Odyssey app. Odyssey has all the podcasts you crave, plus the music, news, and sports that matter to you. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y. Download it for free today from the App Store or Google Play. This show is hosted by me, Nina Gildensevi. Our producers are Kat Aaron, Agarenish Ashagre, Justine Daum, Janelle Anderson, and Maria Robbins Somerville, with additional production support from Zandra Ellen. The show is edited by Joel Lovell, with support from Maddie Sprung-Kaiser. Research and fact-checking by Charles Richter and Ben Phelan. Our engineers are Noriko Okabe, Hannes Brown, and Will Bigwood. This episode features original compositions by Daoud Anthony and Hannes Brown. Original music by David Einmo and music from Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to our executive producers, Max Linsky and Jenna Weiss-Berman. And thank you to each of our guests for joining us to help tell this story. You can listen to Tim Weiner's podcast, Whirlwind, wherever you get your podcasts. And for more about this show, including photographs, FBI documents, and more, follow us on Instagram at myfugitivepodcast and visit our website at myfugitivepodcast.com.